Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Beitza, daf bet. We are beginning a new Masachet, page two. Uh, all Masachet will begin on page two, right? There's never a page one. Um, okay, a, lo- a little bit of introductory material before we get into the Masachet. First of all, um, the topic it, you know, the word beitza translates to be egg. The topic of the Masechet at large is yantif, Yom Tov, the holidays. Um, and it is called, it is known colloquially by the word beitza, uh, not just colloquially, that's how they print up the Masechet, right? And, you know, you'll see it, that, that's what it looks like on the on the shelf. It, um, it is following the first word of the Mishnah, which, Yardena, you'll introduce it to in a moment. Um, so that's where we have Beitza as the name of the parak. Now, um, before before we even delve into the themes and the issues that we expect to confront as we go through, I just want to make a, a really a comment, an aside comment, that there are those who do not call this masachet Beitza, they call it Beya, um, because the Hebrew word Beitza that means egg also means testicle. So there's a concern that it might be not the most sanua, the most modest way to discuss, you know, your tractate of Talmud. So they shift the word so that, you know, those in the know will know what they're talking about. We at Talking Talmud will be referring to the Masachet as Beitza, understanding that everybody who is listening knows that we're talking about the egg that is the first, that is in the first Mishnah of the Masachet. Um, okay, a few themes, topics, ideas, issues. So, uh, somebody at the Siyum, somebody asked the question, why Masachet Rosh Hashanah comes after Masachet Sukkah when we're talking about holidays? Shouldn't it all follow in the sequential manner of the year? And there's a great deal of logic to that kind of thinking about how the how the book should be set up. It happens to be that once they were organizing the Gemara, the Talmud Bavli, what they did from Seder Moed, and it's not exactly the same in every Masa, in every Seder, but it is true for Seder Moed that at a certain point it basically, basically follows the length of the Masechet, so that Shabbat is the longest. And then when we get to Sukkah versus Rosh Hashanah versus Beitzah, etc., we're talking about some of these Masechet are very close in length, uh, you know, 31, 32 dapim, and and which comes first is almost negligible. Sukkah, as you know, had 56 dapim. Beitza has 40 dapim. So it's really like a descending size order, and it's not thematic, uh, which is sometimes a little bit tricky to understand. And I think I feel this in the daf because we're moving quickly, and I kind of expect it to build the same way that our experience of the holidays builds, right? We start with Rosh Hashanah, we come to Yom Kippur, so shouldn't we have Masachet Rosh Hashanah, and then Masachet Yom, and then Masachet Sukkah, and if you want to throw in Beitzah somewhere along the way because it's talking about the holidays, that makes sense to me. The alternative, of course, would be to put Masachet Beitzah together or very in close proximity to Masachet Shabbat, because a good amount of our Masachet is going to discuss issues that have already arisen for us in our learning of Masachet Shabbat. Things like, what can you do on Yantif? What about Yisurei Malacha? Uh, what is allowed on Yantif that is not allowed on Shabbat? What is more stringent with regard to Yantif that is less stringent with regard to Shabbat? All of these kinds of discussions will take place here, and it's going to draw on our knowledge, both already of Masachet Shabbat and also Masachet Erevin. So it's not crazy. The order of the order of the Masachet themselves do build 
it's just not exactly following the calendrical year in the way that might, I don't know, be comfortable, I think. Um, I, I guess is the way I would put it. Um, okay. I would also note that, at least in my experience, there's a certain amount of philosophy that kind of underpins the discussion that we're about to embark on. Um, this idea of, we're going to talk a good amount, the first paragraph talks a good amount about mukta. Right, muksa means the things that are set aside on Shabbos and Yantif that we don't handle on Shabbos and Yantif because they've been set aside. And the question will arise immediately, right? How do we handle something that didn't yet exist on, you know, on Friday or on Erev Yantif to be able to set it aside? And how does that even come into being? So, so there is this kind of I don't know, more abstract discussion side of things that we're going to see, even as we're in the throes of some pretty detailed, you know, uh, detailed halachot of exactly how to handle ourselves in terms of muksa preparation, carrying all of these things that happens. This is primarily our first pack. Just to give us some overview, chapter two is largely about the Erev Tafshilin, which we did discuss in Masachet Erevin as well. But in this case, of course, it becomes particularly germane to the issue of Chag, to the issue of the festival. Chapter 3 begins, or addresses the issues of uh, preparing meat from the very beginning, meaning if you have to hunt your meat and slaughter your meat, and how else, what else are you going to do on Yantif? The idea that everybody is prepared weeks in advance, uh, the Mishnah and the Gemara here do not take that stance. They could they they treat it a little bit more real world. What if you were stuck? What if you needed to go out and, and provide your meal for the for the day on that on the same day um okay chapter four is about um moving things from one place to another you know we've spent a good amount of time if you'll recall between uh shabbos and erevin in terms of issues of carrying and there's also going to be like this is the discussion of the limitations of exactly what you can do with that uh because you know i think people know intuitively that if you live in a place without an air you're still allowed to carry on Yantif in ways that you aren't allowed to carry on Shabbos. It doesn't mean that you can carry anything anywhere. So that's part of that interesting discussion. And then chapter five um, is going to be the more specifics of what you can and cannot do on a festival as compared to what you can and cannot do. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's the point, right? That we're talking about where the festival gets its own definitions, I would say, in terms of what is permitted. Um, okay, so that's, I would say, our introduction to the Masachet, our introduction to the Perak. I mean, again, as I say, it's really about Muksa, and I think uh, I'm a little bit itching now to get to the material itself, to the daf itself. Here, Dana, I'm going to hand it over to you, um, and let's see where we go here. Thanks for that introduction. Um, yeah, it's a little bit of a funnily or oddly placed Masachet because it is so connected to Shabbat, and I think for any of you who have already done the first daf, um, you see a lot of the themes that we talked about in Masachat Shabbat appear here. It almost feels like a page out of Masachat Shabbat. So I'm going to start with the Mishnah and then read a little bit of Gemara. So an egg that was laid on um, a festival. And what's also interesting is here is that this is also a Mishnah that appears in Masachat Ejod, um, chapter four, uh, the first um, Parak Dalit, it's the first Mishnah. And just totally as a side note, I know that we've mentioned before that Masachet Ejot, which appears in the Seder of Nizikin, is sort of the traditionally the first Masachet that was ever written or compiled. 
and it's not around a theme, right? Ejot literally means testimonies. And so often we'll find some of the Mishnayot that appear in Ejot then appear in sort of their proper thematic Mishnah, uh, Masachar, I should say. So this is one of them. So we have an egg that was laid on Chag itself, right? Beit Shammai Omrim Te'achel, Beit Omrim Lo Te'achel. So Beit Shammai says it can be eaten even on that day on Yom Tov itself. And Beit Hillel says it cannot. Now, you know, the Gemara is going to go at great lengths to explain exactly, uh, you know, why that is. And also to note that this is one of the cases where it appears that Beit Shammai is more lenient, is Mekel, and Beit Hillel um, is actually more Machmir, which is usually not what happens. Um, so that's, you know, something else to pay attention to. And then the Mishnah goes on to say, Beit Shammai Arim, Seor so again, this is something that we've talked about before, that when we are thinking about leaven, right, like dough that is going to be used as a leavening agent for other dough, right, how much of it do you have to own to be prohibited that you were owning chametz on Pesach? So it would be the amount of a kezayat. But for eating it, right, for like actually eating chametz, it's going to be the size of a Kakotevet. Uh, um, it's going to be the size of a Kakotevet, right? Which we saw in Masach Pesachim, which is sort of a large date bulk. And Beit Hillel says no. Both of those have a measurement of uh, of a kezayin. Um, Then it goes on to say, Hashochet Chayav Of Tov, somebody who slaughters uh, a wild animal. Right here, we're not talking about an, a domesticated animal, but an undomesticated animal on, you know, animal bird on Yom Tov. And again, this is the second Mishnah in Perak Dalet in Ejot. Beit Shammai Yachfor Badakar right? So we know that there's a mitzvah in the Torah. This appears in Vayikra in chapter 17, verse uh, 13, that you have to cover the blood up after you slaughter an animal. The blood just can't be out there. So Beit Shammai says, on Yom Tov itself, the person who did the shechita, who did the slaughtering, can dig earth with, you know, can dig the earth with the shovel, make a hole and cover it, basically, the blood with the earth. And Beit Hillel says, no, he's not allowed, uh, you know, he is not allowed to, we would say, right, to do this, but rather he should use earth, he should use dirt that was already prepared beforehand. However, Beit Hillel goes on to say, Right. But let's say he already slaughters this animal. Right. And he didn't have that dirt ready. He should go ahead and dig with a shovel and cover the blood. They also both agree that the ashes of a stove. Right. Are, con- are considered to be something that was muhan that's already prepared. And that can also be used to cover the blood. So a very interesting Mishnah covers a variety of topics. It doesn't seem to all be around one, com- you know, one complete theme, although it just seems to be sort of listing a variety of activities that there's a question about whether or not they're appropriate to do um, on Yom Tov or not appropriate to do on Yom Tov. Um, Anna, anything you want to add to that, Mishnah, before I go on to the Gemara? I just want to note that all of these things that are here, there's dispute. Is it okay? Is it not okay? Whatever. They're all things that were at Shabbat instead of the festival, they'd be prohibited, right? You're not, you're Thank not you. allowed to get that. excellent point. Yes. And I should have said that, that that's the point is that these are things, what Bates is trying to tease out is we know 
that there are things that are just not allowed on Shabbat. And so what we're trying to do, and most things are actually not allowed on, um, are, are not allowed on Yom Tov either. But here, what we're going through a little bit on this, on these first couple of Dapim is highlighting some cases where there may be something that's actually allowed on Yom Tov that normally would not be allowed on Shabbat. I would say beginning with Shechita, right? Meaning we're not, or ending with Shechita, that's the end of the mission already, but the point of like, if you don't have food for your Yantif meal, go Shecht an animal, go Shecht your bird and, and handle it in this way and treat the blood in this way. And you're even maybe allowed to dig the hole that you wouldn't have been able to dig if we're Shabbat because you are doing everything Lashim for the purpose of having, you know, your Yantif meal. On Shabbos, if you don't have Shechted meat, you don't get to have shechted meat, meaning like that's it. There's no shechit on Shabbos. Exactly. So I think those are the things to really pay attention to when you're doing the daf in Beitza is specifically, is this something that's specific to Yom Tov? Is it an exception to something that's normally prohibited on Shabbat? These are the things that we're trying to tease out here. And so then what basically happens uh, in this, you know, daf is, you know, it's clearly a question of muksa, right? That in other words, they want to go through what type of chicken actually laid this egg. And then we get a variety of answers. Rab Nachman, Raba, um, and the next staff we'll see there's two other answers of exactly what this case is. What type of chicken was it talking about? Is it a chicken designated for laying eggs? Is it a chicken designated for eating? Um, and this is a lot of what they sort of uh, are trying to tease out. And then going back to the opinions of Rabbi Yehuda, and Ravi Shimon and seeing where this sort of all sort of fits in. But I want to just read one little part here um, uh, about the, the Gemara here. And here I'm on the top of Amud Bet. And the Gemara asks the following, So they say, okay, when we just sort of have a Stam Mishnah, that's what we call it, a Mishnah that doesn't have, you know, a person uh, in it or just who it's unattributed, Okay. Who do we say wrote it? We say Rabbi. We say it's Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. My shna b'Shabbat Rabbi Shimon. U'may shna b'Yom Tov Rabbi Yehuda. And so then, what they want to basically ask is, is that why is it with the halachot of Shabbat when he does a stam Mishnah Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi? It seems to be that that Mishnah, the stam Mishnah of Shabbat, seems to follow the opinion of Rabbi Shimon. But when it comes to, and again, read the page before, it goes through a very long thing about, and it has to do with the understanding of muksa and how muksa works. And then with Rabbi, but when it comes to Chag, right, to Yom Tov, it seems to be that the Stam Mishnah is according to the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda. And so they're asking a great meta question, which is they're acknowledging this is a compilation done by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, but it seems to be that he's not being consistent in these two different Masechtot of whose opinion is he following when it comes to Muksa? In Shabbat, it seems to be that he's following Rabbi Shimon. And when it comes to the halachot of Yom Tov, he seems to be following the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda. And the Gemara goes on to say, Amri, Shabbat de Chamira, right? In the case of Shabbos, where we are very stringent about punishments, right, basically, and therefore people are going to be basically careful. They're not going to treat this like with contempt, Stanlan Kirabi Shimon Demekel. We end up poskening like the person who's more Mekel, who is Rabbi Shimon, right? Because, and that's who Rabbi Yehuda is going to hold by. So it's kind of interesting because it's Shabbos. Like people are like, oh, it's Shabbat. 
and people are going to be more careful, we can hold by a little bit of a more make opinion, right? Um, which is Rabbi Shimon, who's a much like, let's say, uh, uh, a, a tighter or, or more lenient understanding of what muksa is. That's why I want to say that, right? But then it comes to say, right, Yom Tov, Dekil, but with Yom Tov, which is lenient, meaning because so, certain malachot are allowed to be performed. It's not as strict as Shabbat is, but Ate Lizazule Bay. And therefore, people are more likely to sort of be, you know, be like, oh, it's just Yom Tov. I'm allowed to do this. Stam like Rabbi Yehuda to Machmir. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi made the decision that a Stam Mishnah in the halachot of Yom Tov needs to be taught by Rabbi Yehuda was a much broader understanding of what Muksa is. And it's much more Machmir because we want to be careful with Yom Tov. And so I think we learned two really interesting things here on this job. I, I just, you know, I, this is the only part of the passage I'm going to read. I think, first of all, we're learning a lot about the construction and writing of Mishnah and some of the methodology of Rabbi Huda Hanasi. And the second is, what's the logic be behind that methodology? That what Rabbi Huda Hanasi made a decision about is, you can use the more Mako opinion for something that in an area of halakha that everybody treats very uh, stringently. Everybody's careful about Shabbat because Shabbat is the thing that has the most prohibited on it. But then when it comes to an area of halakha where there's a little bit more leniency, right? Like Yom Tov, we're going to actually follow a more masmer opinion to make sure that people are keeping Yom Tov the way that they need to keep it. So this is always some of these meta discussions that appear in the Gemara that I always love. I also love this. And I think also this, the step away from the details of this, this Mishnah and this Daf is interesting in terms of like, let's talk about whose opinion it is. This is the kind of thing that we very often see at the beginning of a Masachet or even sometimes at the beginning of a Parak, where the, the writing of the Mishnah and the writing of the Gemara becomes the focus as opposed to the details that we're looking at. And in the meantime, I'm still fascinated with the details of specifically Beitza Shanolda, right? This case of the chicken that lays an egg and it happens to be Yentif and what can you do with that egg or what can you not do with that egg? I feel like there's so much so much richness to talk about there. And so I find it even more intriguing that Chazal, you know, stop and make the point to address authorship here, which is this kind of like, what, meta background kind of question as opposed to the details of the mission itself. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this app on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.